funding for THINK comes from SMU Continuing and Professional Education. There are cities that for moments in time seem to be veritable genius factor- factories. Ancient Athens, Song Dynasty Hangzhou, Renaissance Florence, and modern-day Silicon Valley. There is no such thing as a genius gene, and it's pretty clear those places never shared a water source. But is there some kind of recipe for a citywide outbreak of brilliance? This is Think on KERA. I'm Chris Boyd. Former NPR correspondent Eric Weiner has done a careful survey of the places known to produce prodigies and learned some surprising truths about the things we all need to do our very best work. His new book is The Geography of Genius, a search for the world's most creative places from ancient Athens to Silicon Valley. He's in town for Arts and Letters Live tonight at the Dallas Museum of Art. Eric, welcome to Think. Hi, Chris. I'm delighted to be here. You write that the factors that make a place likely to spawn genius are not complicated, but they're complex. Can you articulate the differences for us? Right. Well, we tend to use those words synonymously, or we tend to describe uh, our spouse as complicated, but we're complex, <laughs> for instance. Uh, but in fact, there is a difference. Um, a a uh, jet engine is complicated in that you remove one part, and it's still essentially a jet engine, although it may not be one that's operating. A jar of mayonnaise is complex because... If you remove the egg, you lose the mayonnaise-ness. So something that's complex is more organic and integrated. And that's what these places are like. Uh, They are, to use a different metaphor that one character in the book uses, it's like a pina colada. You know, you need certain ingredients, but you need to get them in the right proportions. So all these places, for instance, they're open to outsiders. Um, They have a free flow of information. Uh, They have a certain degree of competition. They have all these ingredients. And some of them, for I confess, remain somewhat of a mystery why, but some of these places do blossom, like Athens and Florence and, and a handful of other places and uh, it, it's quite remarkable to see these genius clusters around the world throughout history, and they're just uh, amazing to behold. Does the factor of this kind of complexity argue against trying to back-engineer a city that is full of geniuses? Yes, unfortunately. Yeah. And I wish I could sit here and tell you I've got the formula for building the next Silicon Valley or the next Renaissance Florence, uh, but I would be lying. Um, th- there is no such formula. Uh, they, these, it's, it's almost like trying to create the weather or perhaps a better analogy is trying to predict the weather two or three weeks out. Now, meteorologists are, can't really tell you what the weather is going to be like exactly in Dallas two weeks from now. And that's not because the weather is random and just obeying no laws of nature at all. It's because of the complexity. And maybe you've heard of the butterfly effect. Mm -hmm. You know, one small input can balloon into much larger outputs down the road. Likewise, um, with these places and why it's so difficult to, as you say, reverse engineer one. Um, one caveat, and it's a big one, is I think there are things we can do to increase the chances of a genius cluster happening. I mean, it's not guaranteed, but let's flip it on its head and say, well, what are the odds of a genius coming out of North Korea right now? Not very great. That's you can bet your money on that because it's not an open system. There's no free flow of information. It has all these other marks against it. So it's not like it's just lightning striking in Athens or Florence and all of a sudden, poof, you have genius. But uh, genius could perhaps come out of South Korea. That's much more plausible. Uh, it is. 
Um, and it's it's a dynamic country, and it's certainly proved to be industrious. Um, but is it a place of genius? Um, I don't think so yet, but it, it, it has a lot of the ingredients. When you were in China, one of the things you were curious about was whether what has been discussed as the innovation gap between China and the mm. West is a real thing or whether it's simply that there's a lot of innovation happening that doesn't look the same as it looks in the right. West. What did you learn about that? Well, I learned, first of all, that during the China, China's golden age in the 13th century, the Song Dynasty, it was an amazing place, and it was remarkably creative, and they were ruled by poet-emperors, which is a great combination. I mean, imagine if poets ran the world. What would that be like? Uh, and they invented the compass and all sorts of other uh, developments, block printing well before Gutenberg. And, uh, and today... Chinese, Chinese, as you say, they they bemoan this innovation gap. And as many Chinese would tell me, everything is made in China, but nothing's invented here. And when are we going to have the first Steve Jobs of China? Well, I met a man who has sometimes been called the first Steve Jobs of China, Jack Ma, who is the founder of Alibaba and one of the richest men in the world. And he told me that he thinks the Chinese actually have to return to their spiritual and religious roots, um, be it Confucianism, Taoism, Buddhism. This surprised me because religion is not really spoken of openly in China. Um, but he thinks that Chinese innovation will happen not when they stop trying to mimic the West and instead return to their own roots. And I, I found that to be an interesting take on things. How important is formal education? Not very. Uh, actually. In fact, uh, earning a PhD makes you statistically less likely to be a genius than not earning a PhD. Well, thank goodness for me. Yeah, see, <laughs> you knew that. Good thinking on your part. Um, and look at the list of geniuses. I'm, I'm doing the air quotes thing. You can't mm -hmm. see it on the radio, but trust me, I am. Uh, geniuses such as uh, Woody Allen, Steve Jobs, um, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, Bill Gates, uh, Leonardo da Vinci, uh, all bad students, college dropouts, uh, all of them. Uh, and I think if you think about it for a minute, it's not that surprising because when we talk about genius, and I want to be clear here, I'm not just speaking of intelligence or having a high IQ. That's not the kind of genius I'm talking about. I'm talking about creative genius. I'm talking about men and women who create something for the ages, men and women who change the way we view the world, like an Einstein or a Darwin or somebody like that. And those people are rocking the status quo. And invariably, uh, when, you, when you're butting up against the status quo, you're going to have a problem with higher education, which especially today is more or less invested in the status quo uh, as we see it. And also, there's the problem of specialization. Earning a PhD, as they say, means learning more and more about less and less. And that is antithetical to true genius, which is always a synthesis. It's always about connecting the dots. It's astonishing to think how dense the population was in Hangzhou in the Song Dynasty, like a million people a thousand years ago is, right. is remarkable. Well, Europe had cities with populations maybe 50,000. You know, and so Marco Polo visited Hangzhou and he was blown away and wrote about it in his diary. And um, yeah, and this density... It's a good thing you mentioned that because there there is a density theory of creative genius, which essentially, if you think of people as like molecules inside of a container, and the more molecules you have circulating and bumping up against each other, the more likely that you will see something new come out of it. 
And I do think that's true, but I don't think it's a fully adequate uh, explanation because, let's face it, slums and prisons are also dense places, and you don't see a lot of creative genius coming out of them. And so I think you need density, but you also need trust and intimacy. And that's what I found in all these places. There, were, there was some competition, yes, but there was also a high degree of trust and intimacy and intermingling of people who had very different points of view. Enlightenment Edinburgh was not a particularly big place right. at all. So what was the special sauce there? Yeah, for, special sauce. Yeah, I like that. 45,000 people, small even by the standards of its day. Um, well, some people think that the key to the Scottish Enlightenment was the Scotch and that it was the Scotch Enlightenment. Um, <laughs> and I say that t- tongue-in-cheek a little bit, but a little bit seriously, because they had these clubs. They had... Dozens, if not hundreds, of clubs. Strange clubs, too, like the 717 Club, where they met at precisely 717 p.m. once a week. Um, The Six Foot Club, where, yes, you needed to be six foot tall. And Sir Walter Scott was uh, not the only member, but he was one member, the writer. Um, And they had something called the Oyster Club, which Adam Smith, the founder of modern economics, and the philosopher David Hume founded and were active members. And they ate oysters because that was the peasant food of the day. They wanted to show they were men and the people, and they drank. And this is the key point. They conversed. And it is not the alcohol, per se, that I think makes you more creative, but the conviviality of it. Um, and the Scots were trying harder. They had just lost their independence to England. Uh, they were on the edge of the world. They were what I call insider-outsiders, Um outside of the now United Kingdom, but inside enough to affect it. So that what happened in Edinburgh was known in London and in Paris. There was a big connection between Edinburgh and Paris. So it's, it's um, I think my book is a lot about sweet spots. Mm-hmm. Sweet spot, for instance, between being an insider and being an outsider, between being competitive and being collaborative. And it's it's finding the sweet spot that I think makes for these genius clusters. Back to this idea of the Scotch, perhaps. Um, mm-hmm. Somebody told you that 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 uh, the people in Edinburgh believed their own myth. Yeah, that that blew me away um, because we think of myths, we think of them as essentially falsehoods. If something's a myth, it's not true. But as Joseph Campbell, the great student of myths and a, a genius in his own right, tells us. Um, Myths are powerful, you know. If you want to see Star Wars, the recent edition, or any edition, you're watching myth, and you know, and it, it's powerful. It motivates us. Um, the American myth of Horatio Alger and pulling yourself up from your bootstraps. And if a country and a people believe in a myth and then act on those beliefs, I would argue it doesn't really matter whether it's it's true or not. You know, the epigraph for my book is very short. It's a one line from Plato. He said, what is honored in a country is cultivated there. And that's very simple. What is honored in a country is cultivated there, but very powerful and I think very true. And so today, you know, there are certainly very good, excellent classical musicians, and there are people who enjoy it, but we don't in general honor classical music the way the Viennese did in the 18th century. So we don't have a Mozart or a Beethoven. Uh, and again, not that there isn't the talent there, but there isn't the the honoring of the talent. So what do we have? We have a Steve Jobs or a Mark Zuckerberg who we elevate to the 
pantheon of genius because that's what we honor. My guest is author Eric Weiner. His new book is The Geography of Genius, a search for the world's most creative places from ancient Athens to Silicon Valley. He's in town for Arts and Letters Live tonight at the Dallas Museum of Art. We'll be back to our conversation in two minutes. Funding for Think comes from SMU Continuing and Professional Education. Spring registration is now open with courses in art, architecture, literature, and languages, as well as professional certificates and test preparation. Registration online at smu.edu CAPE. This is Think on KERA. I'm Chris Boyd, speaking this hour with author Eric Weiner. He's in town for Arts and Letters Live tonight at the Dallas Museum of Art to talk about his new book, which is called The Geography of Genius, a search for the world's most creative places from ancient Athens to Silicon Valley. You can join our conversation at 1-800-933-5372, or you can email think at kera.org. I'm also on Twitter at Chris Boyd Think. All right, I want to talk a little bit about Vienna, because you mentioned just before the break. One thing you note is that music there was not reserved for the elite. Almost everybody played an instrument, and they played it at home and on the street and in formal settings. Right, right. And they, you know, music was literally in the air. In fact, uh, so many people played an instrument that in apartment buildings they had to arrange a practice schedule so they didn't have people drowning each other out. You know, you practice from 5 to 6, and I'll practice from 6 to 7. And I think that the point here is that someone like Mozart, who moves from Salzburg to Vienna, finds himself in this musical city where, as I said, music is literally in the air, and finds an audience, an appreciative audience, and also a demanding audience. And I think you could argue that the audience in Vienna, in a way, was a co-genius along with Mozart. You know, we tend to think of creativity and creative genius as a one-way street. The genius creates their miraculous music, art, whatever it is, and then we, the recipients of it, you know, just lap it up somewhat passively. But uh, in fact, it's much more cooperative than that. And Mozart always wrote uh, for a commission. He never or rarely, rarely wrote something where he didn't know exactly where and when it was going to be played. And he was also a terrible billiards player and and gambled a lot and lost a lot of money and had to earn money to pay back his gambling debts. And he did that by writing music, Um, which is not to say he didn't enjoy writing music, but it was a combination of motivations in a city like Vienna. He wanted to please his audience. He wanted to pay off his gambling debts. He wanted to, he had a very complex and probably complicated relationship with his father. Um, But I think the point is that without Vienna, I don't think we would have a Mozart. If I were given stewardship of someone like Mozart today, I think I would try to provide him or her with a lab-like space where the audio conditions were perfect and where there was never any noise or distraction or draft. (laughs) You write about Mozart writing one of his... Was it a sonata in D minor, literally mm-hmm. while his wife is in the next room in labor? It was a string quartet, yeah. Uh, a string quartet, okay. And um, yes, his wife is, well, it, this this one, it was part of the Haydn quartets, uh, a collection of six string quartets. And, um, and this one, musicologists noticed, just sounded different, more piquant than the other uh, of the quartets. And... And later, sure enough, uh, Mozart's wife confessed that she was in labor when he was composing it. 
And that just seems bizarre. <laughs> then, uh, he may not win husband of the year for that. <laughs> no, well, he did call midwife first before he sat down to compose. But I think the point there, other than, well, bad husbanding, <laughs> is, is that anything can be inspiration. And we think, again, of inspiration happening in a quiet library-like atmosphere. In fact, that's not the case. University of Illinois researchers have looked into this, and they've looked specifically into the best acoustic atmosphere for creativity. And it's not complete silence, nor is it a very loud construction site, for instance. It's about 70 decibels, which happens to correspond with the sort of background din you might hear in a Starbucks or any other coffee shop. And some people call it the Starbucks effect. But what's going on there is, and I don't know if you prefer to do your creative thinking in a quiet studio space or in a Starbucks, but you may have noticed that when you're in a space like that, your fo- your attention is somewhat defocused. There's something else to grab your attention and to sort of take your telephoto lens and broaden it about a bit. Um, psychologists call it defocused attention, which is really how we get creative. It's not sitting with furrowed brow and saying, I'm going to solve this problem, you know, and I'm not getting out of this chair until I do. That's not the way it works. We can go to a coffee shop, we can go for a walk, we can do all sorts of things to incubate, as they say. Let's go to the phones now at 1-800-933-5372. We have Ted on the line in Mejia. Hi, Ted. Hi, Chris. I wanted to ask Mr. Weiner, he was talking about the cultivation and generation and growth of, of the genius of, in music with, you know, Mozart and Chopin. Well, you know, in America... You know, Duke Ellington is considered a genius. The idea of jazz, which is an American creation, you know, Harlem in the 30s and 40s and 50s, you know, uh, I've, I've been to Japan and other places in the world where there are now jazz clubs, which, you know, were imports after World War II. So, you know, is, is, is Harlem or can Harlem be considered, you know, a, a place where genius is or was will be created? Great question. Thanks, Ted. Absolutely. I think it can, and as as can New Orleans when it comes to jazz, both places. Um, and I don't know if we're in a golden age of jazz right now, but we, we were for a while. And again, we valued the jazz, we honored it, and we cultivated it. And that was definitely the case. And it's interesting that Caller mentioned about it, you know, being imported into Japan. Um, I write in the book that uh, good ideas are like toddlers. They can't sit still um, for very long. They're restless. And ideas do travel. And one thing about creative places and people is that they're not afraid to borrow and or steal ideas from other places. The ancient Greeks, who we so admire for inventing supposedly so much, actually were tremendous moochers, especially the Athenians. They they borrowed statue-making from the Greeks, I mean, sorry, from the Egyptians and mathematics from elsewhere, but they took it to the next level, and, and they perfected it. And Steve Jobs, you know, who some people may consider a genius, others not, did plenty of borrowing slash stealing, and I don't necessarily think there's anything wrong with that. Geniuses have always done that. 
You write about um, the fact that places of genius are often associated with having um, significant immigrant populations. Right. Um, and even a place like Harlem and New Orleans, Harlem in particular, might have seen people not from other countries, but certainly with the Great Migration, people from other parts of the United States. Right, right. And um, there's a long list of uh, immigrants and refugees uh, who went on to become creative geniuses. Einstein, Thomas Mann, Marie Curie. I mean, the list goes on and on. Sigmund Freud. And I, I don't think it's a it's a coincidence. I think, well, the traditional narrative we have to explain the, immig- the success of an immigrant is that they work hard, they're, they're hungry, right? They're motivated, they have a supportive family, and so they work harder than the rest of us. Well, that might explain success, but doesn't really explain creativity per se. And I think what's going on is they have a different perspective. And they come in with this perspective and they become insider outsiders. Um, Like Freud. Freud was an immigrant to Vienna. His family moved there when he was young. And as a Jew, certainly he was an outsider. And his ideas, which at the time were considered quite strange, some people still might consider them strange, were not immediately accepted. So he had to work harder for it. And he occupied that insider-outsider perch where, you know, new ideas, but for a while at least, people would listen to him if he if he made a strong enough case for them. You spoke earlier about Mozart always working on commission because he needed the money. Right. <clears throat> Pardon me. There was also, um, you, you talk about Renaissance Florence. Right. And, of course, there were incredibly brilliant artists working, but they wouldn't have been working if they didn't have wealthy patrons to buy their things. Exactly. Or they needed the patrons to support them. Uh, The patrons wouldn't necessarily buy their work. They would... Finance. Finance. They would sponsor an artist and that sort of thing. And the the best and wealthiest patrons of the the day, of course, were the Medici. And they... They weren't just loaded. I mean, they were certainly loaded. They had a keen eye for talent, and they were natural talent scouts, and they leveraged their wealth very expertly. And there was a whole system of workshops in Florence. I mean, these were like internship programs. So there was a a man named Andrea del Verrocchio, who's not really a household name, but one of his students... Uh, or apprentices, really, was Leonardo da Vinci, who was just a teenager, and who, like everybody else, had to work his way up from the bottom, sweeping the chicken cages. Um, I could explain why they had chicken cages, because they used the eggs for tempera. This is before oil. It, It was a messy, I mean, it was not like an artist studio in Soho or anything. This was a messy factory situation here. And uh, Leonardo spent 10 years there, working his way up and learning. And so there was a whole creative ecology in a place like Florence. I think that's the way of thinking of it. And I hope if people get anything out of my book, it's that, you know, I think we need to stop thinking of creativity exclusively as a what or a who or a how. It's also a where. What do patrons in these places do besides just bankrolling this sort of work? Well, they spot talent. They are... You know, these cities are magnets for genius, but they're also colanders that sift out the bad stuff. Hmm. And they pick winners and losers, to put it mildly. And we see this today in a city like, in a place like Silicon Valley. Um, the venture capitalists and the angel investors are the Medici's of, of our day, you know, deciding what to finance and what not to finance. And they're not as well known as the people they 
patronize, if that's the word. Um, but, but they're equally important, and I would argue more important. Because they are helping the geniuses separate the wheat from the chaff? Because you make the point in the book that they have lots of great ideas and lots of terrible ideas. Right. Well, Jonas Salk, two-time Nobel Prize winner, was famously asked by a student, you know, Dr. Salk, how do you come up with so many good ideas? And he said, it's easy. I come up with lots of ideas and I throw away the bad ones. Um, in a place like Silicon Valley, that's done by a group of people, and that's done sort of automatically. Really, the the Silicon Valley success has very little to do with technology, actually. The product, sure, is technology, but the process is one of first discerning the good ideas from the bad ones, separating them, and then plugging the good ones into a system where, oh, you have an idea for a uh, public radio app, uh, well, you should talk to so-and-so, you should talk to so-and-so. And there's this fascinating theory. Uh, it was a paper written in the 70s by a sociologist named Mark Grenovetter called The Strength of Weak Ties. And he argued that having weak ties are better than strong ties when it comes to being successful or being creative. And if you think about it, that's really, he just described Facebook, you know, 30 years before Facebook, because you have lots of Facebook contacts and friends. I'm doing the air quote thing again. Um, but you don't know them that well. And that's what a place like Silicon Valley excels in. It's it's um, a lot of mid-level relationships. Um, so that when you come there with an idea, there's someone who's going to slot it right in. We're speaking this hour with author Eric Weiner about his new book, The Geography of Genius, a search for the world's most creative places from ancient Athens to Silicon Valley. We'll be back with its author, Eric Weiner, in two minutes. Funding for Think comes from SMU Continuing and Professional Education. Spring registration is now open with courses in art, architecture, literature, and languages, as well as professional certificates and test preparation. Registration online at smu.edu CAPE. This is Think on KERA. I'm Chris Boyd speaking this hour with Eric Weiner. He will be in. Uh, he is in town to speak tonight at the DMA for Arts and Letters Live. His new book is called The Geography of Genius, a search for the world's most creative places from ancient Athens to Silicon Valley. You can join us at 1-800-933-5372. What did you learn, Eric, about how competitive the climate is in cities that seem to produce an inordinate number of geniuses? Well, it was an example of where I ran into a contradiction, a contradiction between what a lot of the laboratory research tells us about competition and what I found in the quote-unquote real world. Um, so in the lab, uh, it turns out that intrinsic motivation, that is doing something because you just love to do it, uh, really boosts people's creativity, especially for, for novices. You know, give one group of people some material to make a collage and tell them, you know, just to have fun. Give another group the same material and say, you know, you're going to be judged. You'll receive a cash award. And it's that first group who was told just to have fun who will be more creative. Yet, as you probably noticed in my book, a lot of these places were competitive. There was extrinsic motivation, like Mozart trying to pay off his gambling debts, or Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci who really despised one another. <laughs> Yet it seemed to bring out the best in them. I think um, th there's one study that I think squares that circle. And this was a study done that looked at not novices, but experienced musicians. 
and said, go and improvise. And one group of these improvisers was told just to have fun and enjoy it. And the other group was told, whoever does the best improvisation receives some amount of money, their name will be publicized. And sure enough, the second group did better, uh, more creative improvisation. It seems that when you're starting off in a field, competition can squelch your creativity. But once you achieve a degree of mastery, competition can bring out the best in you. Think of athletes who perform better on on race day than they do uh, in practicing or on game day. Um, There is, I think there is something about competition, if it's a healthy competition, that that does bring out the best in us. It was interesting to read about Calcutta, um, which is a place where there is this great creative energy, but, you know, you can't even necessarily count on, you know, the lights being on when you want them to be. And you would think that would just be just a a hassle for people who are trying to innovate. Well, there's something called small C creativity. I don't know if you've heard of that. This is the idea that you probably practice some small C creativity a dozen times already today. It's, you know, it's uh, dealing with the fact that the lights haven't gone on or having to jerry-rig something to make it work or to get the hot water to come out of your faucet. It's the sort of small challenges that we face every day. And, you know, there's no direct link between small C creativity and big C creativity, but I I can't help but wonder if there isn't something there. Um, Because as one Calcutta told me, you know, you have to be creative every day in that city in order to survive. And I want to say a word about constraints, because that's really what we're talking about here. There's this notion, myth you might call it, that we're at our most creative when all constraints are removed. And you see a lot of companies now, particularly in Silicon Valley, trying to make life so easy for their employees. They don't have to do their laundry. Someone takes care of that. There's free food and coffee and beanbag chairs. And the message is, we're taking care of that. You just go be creative. But that doesn't work because, in fact, creativity is a response to constraints. We need something to push against in order to be creative. And if you remove all those obstacles, there's nothing to be creative about. Uh, If paradise does exist, it's not a very creative place because it's constraint-free. So I think, you know, while I'm all in favor of free coffee, I want to be clear about that. I think we need to be careful about living under this illusion that, you know, creativity only happens when we have perfect conditions. There have never been perfect conditions. And a lot of these places I explore in my book by traveling there today and sort of time time traveling back to their golden age, they are and were difficult places, more difficult than someplace down the road that did not see a golden age. How do places begin to attract talent, attract Hmm. genius? See, that's the question. Because you know, it's easy to say, well, these places are magnets. And so they're places of genius because all the geniuses move there. But you're right. Something had to spark it in the beginning. The, the, the magnet had to become magnetized. And um, it, it's, I think it is organic. I think it's not just people move there. There is some spark. And, um, and once you've got that going, you attract one person and then another and then another And one thing that's struck me as odd, but I saw it as a pattern, is that this spark often ignites shortly after some catastrophe. Hmm. In Athens, the city was sacked by the Persians in the war. 
And it was only after that point that Athens really came into its own, and Pericles, the leader, built the Acropolis that tourists still go to visit today. In Renaissance Florence, just maybe two generations prior to the blossoming of the Renaissance, the city was decimated by the Black Death, the plague, and a third of the city was wiped out. And you see this time and again that there's some sort of disruption or catastrophe even. And if you think about it, it makes sense that you you need to shake things up. And it's sort of the law of unintended consequences, but in a good way. Something bad happens and something good comes out of it because things have been stirred. The pot has been stirred. Why doesn't it last forever? I mean, Athens today is a lovely place to visit, but we're not necessarily expecting, you know, right. to run into geniuses on every street corner. No. And I, one, one thing I do is in the book is I look for the sort of what I call the golden age hangover in the case of Athens. I met with a Greek philosopher in Athens of today, and I asked him, what's it like to be a Greek philosopher today? With an interesting name. Yes. Well, that was Aristotle, right? And he was my guide, but there was another Greek philosopher, and he he said, it's hungry. It's a very hungry existence. Um, And he also said, look, you go to a conference on philosophy and you say you're from Greece and they're like, well, you, you better be good. And if you're good, it's very good. But if you're bad, it's very bad. Uh, and the thing is, it these places tend to be one way, mm-hmm. uh, with few exceptions. Vienna had a bit of a double dip of genius, um, first musical and then the sort of Freudian genius that came a century later. Um, but they, they tend to be one way. Um, I don't know. China might be the exception because the Chinese take a more cyclical view to time and to life. And it's a society, a culture that has seen ups and downs. And I think one reason why our golden ages in the West tend to be one way is because we have a very linear view of time. It's sort of like it's moving forward, you know, like a river and not like a Ferris wheel. So um, we think, well, you've had your time under the sun. So you, Detroit, you know, your day is gone and over with or New Orleans or whatever it is, whatever city that we considered to have its best days behind us. But if you're Chinese, you know, they they don't believe, I'm talking about Chinese cosmology here, in creating something out of nothing. In the Chinese belief system, there's always been something. And what the creative person does is rearrange that stuff, which may sound not like such a big deal to us, but it is a big deal. Um, the the historian Will Durant has a great quote. He said this, and he said this a number of years ago, there's nothing new but the arranging. Hmm. But that's not so bad. There's great beauty and magic in arranging things just the right way. Do you believe you've ever met a genius? You mean other than right now? <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done. Yeah, smooth, <laughs> smooth. <laughs> Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I could most of us spot a genius that we encountered. You know, I think we we can we spot smart people, we spot talented people, but genius. You know, I'd like to to think that we just know it when we see it, but it, genius requires a couple of things. It requires a social verdict. We enough people and enough important people. Let's be honest, have to agree that. This person's a genius. You can't just self-declare yourself a genius, right? Although many people have tried. They've tried, but we consider them nuts, right? right? And, and delusional. So, And and the second thing is is longevity, the, the test mm-hmm. of time. And so that your work of genius is, I think, rediscovered by future generations and reappreciated by future generations, not necessarily for the same reasons, for maybe for slightly different reasons, 
But um, look, we're still listening to Mozart's music today. Generations are enjoying it and appreciating it. And so the social consensus that Mozart was a genius, that, that has gelled. Now, Steve Jobs, I don't know. What do you think? Was he a genius? There's always the question of whether he was the genius or he knew exactly what, you know, who to put in place and how and whether or not that's a form of genius. I'm, You're not answering the question. I'm not answering because <laughs> I don't know. Right. Don't know. We don't know because it's too soon, I think. And we're debating it. And maybe 100 years from now, you know, Steve Jobs will be on the same level as an Edison or a Mozart or an Einstein. But um, I hate to go with the cliche. It's too soon to tell. But it is too soon to tell. These things take a while to gel. Eric Weiner's new book is called The Geography of Genius, a search for the world's most creative places from ancient Athens to Silicon Valley. He will speak tonight at the Dallas Museum of Art for Arts and Letters Live. Eric, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for spending this time with us. Thanks, Chris. This was a lot of fun.